Well, my name is Heather Taves, and for those of you who are guests with us or have um, or maybe only been here a handful of times, you might be wondering why there's someone different up here on stage every week. Um, and, you know, I think it's awesome because if you didn't like this week's preacher, then you'll probably like next week's preacher, so it all works out, right? <laughs> um, we here at Church 214, we are not led by one pastor. We are led by a team of people, and then we have a teaching team, and we all rotate, and we all take turns. And I just have to give a shout-out to the guys who preached before me in this series, Phil and Mike and David. They've just, you guys did a phenomenal job communicating something that I thought I knew everything would be a strong word, but a lot about. And yet you guys just gave so much insight and so much um, realness and newness to it. So wherever the other two are, thank you so much for that. And if you want to stay up here and play the whole time I'm preaching, you can. Or you can stop. <laughs> uh, someday I would like, you know, like Bishop Jake's. He's got his organ up there. That is bucket list. Okay, cool. That's awesome. Um, a few weeks ago, Taylor, our kids director, had mentioned to me that when she started sharing with her kids' teaching team about this series, the Ten Commandments, which is what we're at the very end of, none of her teaching team wanted to preach in this series. They're all like, no. And um, I thought, what in the world? Why not? It's the Ten Commandments. This is easy peasy lemon squeezy. Or if you're my nephew, easy peasy squeeze my lemons. <laughs> I thought, why would anyone not want to teach in the Ten Commandments? Like, it's just a list of rules. I love rules. Like, this is, this is, I got this. Well, they apparently knew something that I'd be, or sorry, and, um, this has been really hard or sermon to write, not because the content is hard, but because the conviction set in in such a way that I, I had to really repent and tell the Lord, okay, yep, I was not following these the way that you've expected me to follow these. I've got some work to do. So my prayer for you today is that you too will feel that conviction as you listen in to these last three commandments and that you will leave not feeling beat down, not feeling like a burden has been put on you, but you will leave feeling convicted because I believe that the truth in these, three com these last three commandments could alter your life. Here's the if. If you let the Holy Spirit reveal some things in your life and in your heart that need to be worked on. So I would like to start out and pray. And I think we do this thing where we ask God to show up. But I think the reality is, is that he's always here. He's already here. He doesn't have to show up. Deuteronomy, Moses is talking to the people of Israel. And he's talking to them for God. And God says to the people, I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. And to me, that means he's already here. He doesn't have to come. Would you pray with me? God, would your presence that is already here with us, would your presence just invade our lives right now, God? Without you, these are just a list of rules. But when your Holy Spirit is with us and when your Holy Spirit can reach down into the depths of our soul, to the places that no one else can see, to the places that we can't even see many times, 
you change us, God. We're asking for that today. Thank you for your presence that is already here with us. Thank you for the power that is already in us and working in and through us. In Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. Okay, we're going to look at the last three commandments. We've gone through one through seven. Um, but I want to backtrack just a little bit because, one, I love Bible history. And y'all are an audience that can't go anywhere. Well, I guess you could, but you're in seats right now listening, so you're just going to have to hear some of this Bible history because I don't have anyone else to share it with, okay? So um, I feel like God gave me a little bit of insight for some of you today. I think it's, it's actually, no, I believe that it's a word for someone, that there is someone here today that is supposed to hear this. Um, I felt like he gave this to me on Tuesday morning, and I don't know what was going on in your life on Tuesday morning, but I think this is for someone or s several of you in here specifically. So um, if you are new to the study of the Bible, the Israelites were God's chosen people since the time of Abraham. Now let's talk about Abraham for a little bit. Okay, he was a nomad. He was a wanderer. He didn't really ever stay in one place for very long. And so he was from the land of Ur. Now I have a map that I brought that y'all can't see up close because the print is so little. And there's another map on the screen, which I'll talk to you about. But isn't this cool? I mean, this shows not only ancient Israel, ancient, the ancient world, but this shows the, the modern cities too that are in the same places of the ancient cities. And it shows all of the different journeys and paths that Abraham and um, the Israelites and Paul and all of their journeys. So if you're a map geek like me and you'd like to come check it out later, I'll just leave it right here. Okay. Okay, so if you look on this map, Abraham is from Ur. It's all the way down at the bottom. You see Ur? Okay. Yep. So he's wandering around, and, and then he ends up at Haran, right up there at the top where the blue dot gets, where it goes up. Yep, that right there, okay? So he ends up up there. It's north of Canaan, which is the promised land that we'll talk about later. It's, we don't know that it's a promised land yet in Abraham's day. And then if you see, it winds back down around to Egypt. So that'll give you a little bit of an idea of where we're at on the map. Okay, so he's in Haran, and then God speaks to him, and he says this. Okay, he says, go from Haran to the land of Canaan. And we're going to talk more about Canaan in a minute. God promised Abraham that he would be a father of a great nation, which was hilarious because he had no children at this point. God promised him, gave him this great promise. And we know now that this is the people of Israel. These are God's chosen people, Israel. So Genesis 12, when they arrive in Canaan, the Lord appeared to Abram and said, I will give this land to your descendants. Holly, if you put that map back up there for a second, Canaan, okay? That is the promised land that the Israelites come out of Egypt and go back up to. So Abraham was there before any of the Israelites even went back to it. So Abram built an altar there and dedicated it to the Lord who had appeared to him. Abraham had a son named Isaac, and Isaac had a son named Jacob, and then Jacob had 12 sons, one which was Joseph, who his brothers betrayed and sold him into slavery, and they end up in Egypt. He ends up in Egypt. Eventually, because the famine was all, throughout all the land, but Joseph had figured out a way to provide food for people because he had planned ahead. All of Joseph's family leave the land of Canaan and go down to Egypt. 
So all the people that will become God's chosen people, our God's chosen people, the Israelites, are now in Egypt, out of the promised land and in Egypt. This is how the Israelites became slaves for hundreds of years in Egypt. Then we see the story of Exodus, of, of Moses, and how the nation of Israel is um, called out of Egypt in their escape from slavery and bondage, and they leave, they leave with the promise of God to take them to the promised land, back to the land where the promise was given to Abraham. So God was taking his people back to where the promise first began. But here's what I want you to see. They could have gone directly across to Canaan, which is a direct route. Holly, if you could put that other map up. Okay. You see where it says Ramses right there? And then they could just go whoop right up to Canaan along the left side of the map along the water. It's about a three-week journey. It wouldn't have taken them that long. Instead, they took that red path all the way around. It took them 40 years to get there. The Bible tells us God directed them on this path. It wasn't like Moses just woke up and was like, oh, I think we'll take the long route today. It says God directed them. And here's what I think that someone is supposed to hear. God is allowing you to take the long path for a reason. You would like a more direct path but there are some giants on that path that you are not ready to face. See, the direct path from Egypt to Canaan was ruled by the Philistines. The Philistines had some giant, physically giant people, and they were warriors, okay? And they, they're known in the Bible as some of Israel's greatest enemies throughout Bible history. But God knew that at that time, Israel were not warriors, they were newly freed, freed manual labor slaves with no training in battle. And they had no rules, no guidelines to rule their nation. So God knew they had a lot to learn before they could get to the really hard stuff. God may be allowing you to be on the path that seems to be out of the way because he needs to get you ready for something that he's called you to do. The longer, more treacherous path has stopping places, listen to this, along the way that you need to prepare you for what God has for you to do. Had the Israelites gone the path of Canaan, they would have missed Mount Sinai. You know what happened at Mount Sinai? God's presence showed up in a mighty way, thunder and lightning, and they were terrified, and he gave them the Ten Commandments. It was at Mount Sinai that God speaks to Moses and he gives them these commandments which will guide their nation and still guide us today. These commandments set them apart from the rest of civilization. If you've studied ancient times at all, you'll know that it was chaotic. These commandments are unlike any other that existed in any other nation or any other group of people at that time. These commandments prepared the way for Jesus. Had they gone on the direct path and had it taken them only three weeks, guess who wouldn't have been old enough yet to lead the way? Joshua. He wouldn't have been prepared yet to conquer Jericho and lead the people into the promised land. 
What God taught them in those 40 years, he taught them to be warriors. But more importantly, he taught them to trust him and to listen to his voice. Not that they always did that. There were a lot of times that they didn't. But maybe God is preparing you on the long path for something that you are supposed to conquer, something that you're going to be a warrior for. So don't resent the path that God has you on. Lean into it. Listen, ask God for stopping places along the way where he can teach you and grow you and prepare you. Ask him for Mount Sinai's where he can reveal his plans to you. All right, let's get to the Ten Commandments. So the four that we talked about in the previous weeks, the first four talk about our relationship with God, God and us. Okay, and then last week, we worked on three of them. We listened to three of them, and they talk about our relationship with people. So we're going to look at these last commandments. Commandment number eight, Exodus twenty fifteen. You must not steal. I think that is about as straightforward and concise as you can get, right? You must not steal. God was not mincing words. He wasn't leaving us to wonder, hmm, I wonder what that text actually means. The word is translated the exact same in the Old Testament in the Hebrew as it is in the Greek. It means the same thing. It means to thieve or to deceive. If you, if you understand what was happening in this time, this ancient time, you will see, as I mentioned earlier, that there's chaos and injustice across the rest of the land. That's how the other people of the lands, is how they were ruled and how they lived. So these Ten Commandments, God was establishing a foundation for a different kind of human society. He was establishing a foundation for a society that was set apart and different from those that already existed. They were breaking the mold. God was breaking the mold for them and asking them to walk in it. He was saying, I come first, but then others come before yourself. Love God, love people. I think we all pretty much know that we shouldn't steal a car. We shouldn't steal from a store. We teach our kids not to steal. We shouldn't cheat on our taxes or add extra mileage to our work miles. Or do we? Is it justifiable if it's just a little amount? What if no one notices? Then is it okay? Is it stealing if we don't get caught? Someone the other day mentioned to me, I still can't figure out how this works, but I don't want to know. Um, they made money by working the system in returning merchandise that they were never going to use, but that they had somehow bought with gift cards and kept coming out ahead. They had made hundreds of dollars doing this. I have no idea how, but they were proud of it. They're like bragging about it. Is that stealing or is that just being smart? Working the system. I've had people before ask me to pay them in cash for services or work that they've done um, because they don't want to have a paper trail to report it on their taxes. Is that stealing? Jesus said that it was. In Matthew 22, he says, give to Caesar what is Caesar's, or to the government what is the government's, and give to God what is God's. What about stealing when we give back to God in our tithes and offerings? 
The Old Testament and the New Testament are full of scripture on this, and we're not going to get into it all today. We don't have time. But God clearly sets the standard in the Old Testament for his people to give 10%, give their first fruits. This goes all the way back to the first brothers, Cain and Abel. Then in the New Testament, Jesus confirms this when he talks about our generosity and our hearts and where our treasure is. I want to brag on all of you for a minute. This church is so great at giving. You guys are just awesome, generous givers. Do you know that typically in church, it's 30 to 40% of people who consistently and obediently tithe or give? In our little church, it's like 80 to 90%. You guys, that's incredible. You are faithful givers, and God is so honored by your obedience. I think that when we think of stealing, thou shalt not steal, we often think of money or things. But I want to take this one step further. And this is, I might gently suggest most of us need to hear. See, God created us to be in fellowship with him. Isaiah 43, 7 says, Bring all who claim me as their God, for I have made them for my glory. It is I who created them. And then he fulfills his ultimate plan and sacrifices his own son, Jesus, for us. 1 Peter 1, 18 and 19. For you know that God paid, if you have your Bibles open, circle that word paid, paid a ransom to save you from the empty life you inherited from your ancestors. And it was not paid with mere gold or silver, which lose value. It was the precious blood of Christ, the sinless, spotless lamb of God. He paid for us. When you pay for something, you get to keep it, right? It belongs to you. You bring it home. It's yours. So here's my pondering. Can it be that we steal, and not just steal, but steal from God when we refuse to give him our obedience? When we refuse to make spending time with him a priority? When we refuse to serve others, which means when we serve others, we are serving him. When we refuse to worship when we refuse to give him honor and glory, are we robbing God with our time? Are we stealing from God? I know this happens for me. This is where the conviction started to sit in, people. I often let everything and everyone else come first and shout louder. And he doesn't always get time from me during the day. Sure, I'll say some flare prayers, I'll even talk about him to my children, but does he get intimate, one-on-one, God, I'm here, speak to me, I'm listening, time. If he doesn't, I would call that stealing because we are his creation and he created us to be in fellowship with him. Okay, one last thought on this commandment. John 10.10 describes Satan to us like this. The thief... Satan's purpose is to steal, kill, and destroy. Jesus describes Satan as one who steals. It's part of his identity. When we steal, whether we're fudging on our taxes a little bit or we're robbing God of the time that we spend in his presence, we are associating with the devil. We are identifying 
with part of Satan's identity. I don't know about you, but I want nothing to do with that. I want my identity to be fully and soundly with Jesus Christ, my Savior. Commandment 9, Exodus 20, verse 16. Ye shall not bear, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. Okay, hang with me for a second because we're going to go Hebrew and Greek for just a minute. Actually, just Hebrew. Hebrew for bear is anah, which means answer, respond, speak, or shout. You shall not bear. Hebrew for false is sheker, which means deceive, fraud, betray, or lie. Ye shall not bear false. Hebrew for witness is odd, which means testimony or spoken statement or evidence. Ye shall not bear false witness. Hebrew for neighbor, this is a good one, is ra'ah, which means associate, brother, companion, fellow, friend, husband, lover. Basically everyone. Ye shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. So, we must not speak, respond, or give evidence of things which deceive, betray, or lie about anyone. Let me make this even more clear. A false witness works in two ways. The first way is in public, which this implies a court of law. Okay, we, we all know that. We live in the United States of America. We understand the, the justice system and how that works, the courts. We are not to give false statements in a court of law. The second way is in private, behind people's backs, with our spouse, with our friends, with strangers. We are not to bear false witness against anyone in this manner. When we speak falsely in any manner, we break this commandment. Listen, when we devalue someone's reputation by the words that we're saying, we break this commandment. When we devalue someone's reputation by spreading gossip, we break this commandment. When we devalue someone's reputation with our words to make our own reputation look better, we break this commandment. We gain only self-promotion. Do you hear me? When we gossip. It only helps us, and it doesn't actually help us. It just makes us feel better for a moment. When we inflate a situation, when we betray someone else, we break this commandment. There's this awesome pastor and evangelist. Um, he's gone to be with the Lord now, but his name is Alan Redpath. He's from Britain. And a couple of his quotes this week just nearly left me undone. He says, how very strange that we have even come to think that Christian maturity is shown by the ability to speak our minds. Whereas it is really expressed in the controlling of our tongues. Oh, Lord Jesus, help me with this one. You laugh, I am not laughing. This one is hard, people. Proverbs has so much to say about controlling our tongues. And there are so many times when you just should stop talking. Let me rephrase that. There are so many times when I should just stop talking. King David sets his standard. I love this so much. In Psalm 101, he's speaking about all the people that he's putting around him, okay, to help in his kingdom. And he says this, 
I will not tolerate people who slander their neighbors. I will not endure conceit and pride. I will search for faithful people to be my companions. Only those who are above reproach will be allowed to serve me. I will not allow deceivers in my house and liars will not stay in my presence. King David was not messing around. He took this commandment seriously. As I looked more and more into this verse and the depth of meaning to it, I kept a list on a notepad of words and sayings that I came across that were associated with it. They were so sobering and they were so convicting to me. If we are bearing false witness against our neighbors when, listen, we speak insincere words, when we speak empty words, when we cause injury to one's property or character, when we slander in common conversation, when there is scorning, when there is backbiting, when there is tale telling, when there is exaggerating. And I think it is just as prevalent in those of us who call ourselves Christians as it is in those who don't. We have to stop bearing false witness against our neighbors. Alan Redpath also said this, what a startling revelation it would be if a tape recording could be played of all that every church member said about his fellow members in one week or his fellow work associates in one week or his fellow neighbors or his fellow schoolmates or strangers. Slander, bearing false witness, gossip. Let me end with this from Psalm 15. Who may worship in your sanctuary, Lord? Who may enter your presence on your holy hill? Who can come in, Lord? Who can, who can enter your presence? Who can really come into your presence and worship you? Those who lead blameless lives and do what is right, speaking truth from sincere hearts. Those who refuse to gossip or harm their neighbors or speak evil of their friends. Not God, God meant this. Who can enter? Not gossipers not slanders, those who refuse to do it, those who shut their mouths. Okay, we have one left to go. Are you still with me? Okay. We're almost done, and this is a good one. Commandment 10, Exodus 20, verse 17. You must not covet your neighbor's house. You must not covet your neighbor's wife or husband male or female servant, ox or donkey, or anything else that belongs to your neighbor. The first nine commandments focus on things that we are to do or not to do. This last one focuses on our heart and its desires. It's a heart check. The word covet in Hebrew is kamad, which means to set the heart on or desire. This goes all the way back to Adam and Eve in the garden. They were desiring something that was not theirs, even though they had an abundance of everything they needed around them. They literally had everything they needed. And you know what they wanted? The one thing in the middle of the garden that God said, nope, not yours. Sound familiar? God covers all the bases with this one. Okay, in today's terms, we are not to covet anyone's houses, 
anyone's spouse, anyone's hired help, anyone's cars, or anything else that anyone has. When we covet, it shows our dissatisfaction towards what we have, what God has given to us, because all gifts come from him. And when we are jealous towards what others have that we deem better, we are coveting. I remember years ago, before we had kids, and I was kids pastor at a great church here in Peoria, and I had been working um, 50, 60, 70 hours a week, and ministry is brutal sometimes. It's awesome. I love it, giving my life to it, but sometimes it can break you down too. And I was exhausted And we had no money to speak of, really, right? Yeah. So vacations were not in the question, okay? Just like it wasn't. We might tag along with mom and dad and, like, stay in a two-bedroom condo with 12 other people, which was awesome because it was free because I have lots of siblings. Um, But we finally, I don't even remember what it was, but we finally were going to get to go on a vacation, just the two of us, and we needed it really, really badly. And I remember we were with a group of friends, and I I said to these friends, you guys, we're leaving for vacation tomorrow. And their responses were polar opposite, and I'll never forget this as long as I live, and it changed me. The one said, I am so happy for you. I am so glad you get this. You guys need this. And the other one said, man, I'm so jealous. That response is given a lot when other people have blessings, when other people have things that you covet, that you want. Could we just cut that out of our vocabulary? Could instead we say, I'm so glad that you get to do this. I'm so glad that God has given you this home. I'm so glad that God has given you this job. I'm so glad that you get to go on this vacation. I'm so glad that God has given you this baby. Because when we do that, we honor God and we help them feel loved. It feels really gross when someone says, I'm so jealous. Because a lot of times, whatever it is that they're jealous about, you've had to sacrifice some other things for. Or you desperately need. And they don't know the backstory. So their jealousy just hits you like a knife and then you feel guilty. Someone just said that to me today. I feel guilty. I feel guilty about this. And this person should not, they have zero reason to feel guilty about this blessing that God has given them. Jesus was teaching a crowd of people in the book of Luke. And someone called from the crowd, teacher, hey, teacher, please tell my brother to divide our father's estate for me. And I just so much love Jesus' answer. Jesus replied, friend, who made me a judge over you to decide such things as that? I'd say this to my kids. You know, they come in from playing driveway hockey. He, he tripped me. He called a penalty, and it wasn't a penalty. And, blah, blah, blah. and I'm like, go back outside and figure it out. Who made me your judge? Go figure it out. Then Jesus says, beware. Guard against every kind of greed. Life is not measured by how much you own. If we could get that into our heads and into our hearts, this commandment would be easy. 
When we are jealous or discontent or covet what someone else has, we are making earthly things into idols. And then we're disobeying two commandments at once. Because God said, make no, nothing an idol. Worship nothing but me. An idol is anything, anything at all, that we value as more important than God or obedience to God. Here's the deal, guys. I think what we covet is either just stuff or it's relationships that we see other people have. If it's stuff, if you're constantly feeling like you're jealous or you're coveting what other people have, then you probably have an idolatry issue. And you need to deal with that. You need to recognize that you have made things more important than God. If you find yourself coveting other relationships that people have, it might mean that you need to start putting some hard work into some of your own relationships. Please hear me. I am by no means saying that this is an instant fix, okay? I am by no means saying that there aren't some really tough parental and children relationships out there that can be fixed in an instant. I am by no means saying that there's marriages out there that can be fixed in an instant if you, if you just put the hard work in. I get that there's some really tough relationships out there. But... Oftentimes, I hear people say, well, I wish I had a friend like that. Or I wish my marriage was like that, but they haven't done jack squat about strengthening the relationships in front of them. If you do the hard work, you will have no reason to covet someone else's friendship or someone else's marriage. If you invest in the relationships right in front of you, everything you need has already been given to you. I'll end commandment 10 with this hope. Hebrews 13, 5 says this, be satisfied with what you have. It doesn't say be satisfied with what you're still going to get. It says be satisfied with what you have. For God has said, here's the promise, I will never fail you. I will never abandon you. Why do we think that things and stuff is going to fill us up when we have a God who says, I will never fail you. I will never leave you. Does that mean we always understand it? No. Does that mean we always like it? No. But it's a promise, and his promises never fail. Okay, I'm going to wrap up all of these commandments now and put a big bow on it. This is the bow. This is absolutely the best news possible. Phil touched on this briefly last week. In and through ourselves, we could never uphold this list of rules. We couldn't do it. We would fail. We do fail every day. But these 10 commandments were just a very small part of God's entire plan to save us. All the way back at Mount Sinai, when God took the Israelites on a long path, his plan for us today, this was just a small part of it. The law itself could not save us. The law itself could not save the Israelites. They had, to, they had to, if they broke the law, they had to go offer sacrifices of animals. 
Even if we kept all 10 of these commandments perfectly, we could not be saved by them. There still has to be a sacrifice. So the Israelites would go to the priests and they would bring their animals and they would offer them as sacrifices so that their sins could be forgiven. And God said, wait, hold on. I have a plan. I have a plan that involves my only son. And I love you so much and I so desperately want to be in fellowship with you that I'm going to sacrifice my son. He is going to die on the cross so that he can be the sacrifice for the rest of time for all of humanity. Romans 8, 1 through 4 says, So now there is no condemnation. Do you hear me? There is no condemnation. Nothing is held against you. For those who belong to Christ Jesus, and because you belong to him, the power of the life-giving spirit, the Holy Spirit has freed you from the power of sin that leads to death. In and of ourselves, in our death, we, in, in our own sin, we would die. The law of Moses was unable to save us because of the weakness of our own sinful nature. We can't do it on our own. So God did what the law could not do. He sent his son in a body like the bodies that we sinners have. And in that body, God declared an end to sin's control over us. Here's the cool part. By giving us his son as a sacrifice for our sins. He did this so that just requirements of the law that the law required would be fully satisfied for us who no longer follow our sinful nature, but instead follow the spirit. So here's the deal, guys. Our sinful nature, we couldn't uphold these commandments. But when we choose Jesus, the Holy Spirit power comes in us and through his power, we are able. When Jesus went to the cross, he fulfilled the law for us so that we could obey through his power. Some people say, well, since Jesus came, doesn't that make the law obsolete? Can't we just write it off? It's Old Testament. Come here, let me punch you. <laughs> I love the Old Testament, but I love it with the New Testament. I love that God had a plan all along. He didn't intend for it just to be the law that we couldn't uphold. He had a plan because he is for us. He had a plan for us to be able to uphold it through Jesus. Jesus answered this question in Matthew 5. He says, don't misunderstand why I have come. I did not come to abolish the law of Moses or the writings of the prophet. Yes. No. I came to accomplish their purpose. I tell you the truth, until heaven and earth disappear, not even the smallest detail of God's law will disappear until its purpose is achieved, until Jesus comes back and sets up his reign here on earth. So, this is Jesus talking. This isn't Old Testament. This is Jesus. This applies to us. If you ignore the least commandment and teach others to do the same, you will be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. But anyone who obeys God's laws and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. 
But I warn you, unless your righteousness is better than the righteousness of the teachers of religious law and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. The teachers of the religious law in Jesus' time and the Pharisees, they knew all of the laws and they kept them probably perfectly, but they missed Jesus. He was right in front of them and they didn't even see him. They didn't even recognize him. Without Jesus, the law doesn't matter. We are only able to achieve that righteousness through Jesus. God's plan all along, all the way back, when he promised Abraham that promised land and a great nation, his plan all the way back to Adam and Eve was to send Jesus to be the mediator between us and him. For the Israelites, he gave them the law and he sent Moses as their mediator. The people were terrified of what was taking place at Mount Sinai. They said, no, 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 no. We don't want anything to do with this. Moses, you go. But for us, God sent Jesus who fulfilled the law and sets us free. And at the end of all of this, all of these laws that we are to keep, they can be condensed into two things. And this was Jesus who said this. Two things that we have to remember, and they're so easy. Love God, love people. God first, people, then us. 1 Timothy 2.5 says, For there is one God and one mediator between God and mankind, the man Christ Jesus. Would you pray with me? God, we thank you that you sent us Jesus. That we didn't have to do this on our own because we would fail over and over and over and over again. But you knew that and you made a way, God. You made a way where there was no way for us to have freedom and redemption and forgiveness. And the sacrifice you gave was more than we can even fathom. But you were willing, God, for us. So Jesus, in our weakness, you are strong. And through your Holy Spirit power, help us this week to think about the words that we say, to think about how we spend our time, to think about what it is that we're desiring. And through the Holy Spirit's power, help us be able to look to you, Jesus, and put you first. We love you so much in Jesus' name. Amen.